I am your host, Josh Miller, and I am coming at you all alone. No one here to record with me. That's right, Alan Muir, who is my usual co-host. We are having some conflicting time issues. Uh, This is technically the second podcast I am recording without Alan. Um, Although the first one you will not hear until January, because for whatever reason... I decided to record them out of order, but I wanted to try and record one that was relatively near, such as this one, and then I recorded one that was in January that would be more difficult to get done due to our Game of the Year podcasts, which will have us bogged down for quite a bit. So, you get me today. Just me. And I'm recording this one slightly differently, uh, so I don't know how this will turn out, but hopefully well. So what are we talking about today? Well, it's October. Or it will be when you'll hear this. And so I wanted to try and get everybody in the mood. That spooky horror mood. And so we are going to discuss the IDW crossover that they did with their uh, licensed properties. Uh, And we're going to talk the IDW infestation event. I remember seeing this back when they were releasing it. I thought it was a really cool idea, though I wasn't entirely sure how well it would play off. And it's one of those things where, like, the idea itself can pull me in, and depending on what crossovers, what licensed properties they have, will depend on the full interest, but also how well they're used. And I guess in the back of my head, this event would be done differently than what it turned out to be. And so, can't say I didn't come into this with higher expectations and left feeling a little disappointed. Um, But we will get to that here in a bit. But yeah, IDW, like, they are a fascinating company, especially when they start doing the licensed stuff. Uh, I feel like between them and Boom... Uh, They do a whole bunch of stuff that's just kind of outside their own wheelhouse, typically. Um, But Infestation was their attempt to kind of utilize that as a way to bring readers into their main universe. And I don't know if that succeeded on their front. Um, I know the Infestation titles themselves were pretty successful, um, so much so that they decided to do a follow-up to it. But I don't know if that ever played out in the other titles that they had sales-wise. So, today, for our first episode in October, I wanted to talk about this zombie event that brought in books like Transformers, and G.I. Joe, and Ghostbusters, and Star Trek. And so, very interesting uh, licensed properties that they tried to bring together for this event. And some played out better than others, uh, but in the end it was an interesting take 
that's for sure. Even though I felt that they could have utilized their licensed properties a bit better, but that was not something they could really work um, against in terms of the companies that they were pulling the properties from. So I also want to apologize in advance. My two kitties are feeling a little rambunctious, so they're just kind of running around uh, tackling each other and causing a little bit of mischief, so I don't know if you will hear that. Uh, but just in case, that's what you might be hearing in the background. So, so let's go ahead and get started with the IDW infestation event. So before infestation was decided on, the goal was to draw readers to the IDW non-licensed content. However, this is a difficult thing to do. So they decided to capitalize on the licensed properties that they did have, with the obvious caveat being that they had to convince their licensors to allow such a story to be told. Chief Creative Officer Chris Royale, I hope I pronounced that right, and if I didn't, I do apologize. Uh, Chris wanted to do something like this for a very long time, and thus the idea of infestation was born. They had put together ideas and pitched it to the owners of the properties, and surprisingly, they were fine with the idea throughout the six to nine months of discussions. One of the things said about these conversations was, it's all about conversation. In a lot of conversations with a lot of creators, between the editors internally, and with each licensor separately, this isn't the kind of thing you pull together overnight. It's a logistical nightmare, but hopefully also a lot of fun for everyone. When Dan Abnett and Andy Landing were brought on, some of the ideas for infestation were already there. IDW had determined certain things they wanted to appear in the series, but left it up to Dan and Andy to make them work. Playing with a number of licensed properties left open the possibility of problems in both continuity and equal time between all of the books. According to Dan and Andy, having their story set in the core IDW universe allowed this idea to work. That way, one property wasn't shining more than the other, and forcing any one license to fit at the expense of another. The tone was another thing that they would have to work with. Obviously, the different series would have different feels to them. Trying to make them all work together, while still being true to what those universes are like, was a bigger problem than, say, trying to find where in the Transformers continuity a series like this would fit. Dan and Andy had this to say about uh, playing with all of these different properties. It's huge fun, and it's great to be allowed to play with toys that are so beloved. It's also very nostalgic. We both started out in the industry back at Marvel UK in the 80s, where we were working on the UK editions of licenses like Transformers, Ghostbusters, and Action Force, which is G.I. Joe to us Brits. Infestation is one of those things where you would think, with as big of a deal as it was to IDW, that I would find a whole bunch of information about this event, but I did not. Uh, so... We're going to get right into the story here and just get it out of the way. And so it starts with Infestation number one. It is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Pencils by David Messina. Inks by Gaetano Carlucci. Uh, colors by Claudia Scarlet Gothica. Prologue art by Elena Casagrande. Art assist by Claudia Balboni. Letters by Robbie Robbins. And edits by Chris Royal, Tom Waltz, and Bobby Kernow. And so, taking off from Zombies vs. Robots Adventure, something I did not read, um, as the trade that I bought for Infestation 
it's the complete edition. It's the omnibus, essentially, that collected both Infestation 1 event along with Infestation 2. Did not have Zombies vs. Robots adventure in there, so I don't know what all plays out in that, but... Infestation number one begins with a briefing about the Kirtland Underground Munitions Complex being hit with a biological virus of some sort. This virus would animate the dead, but fortunately was contained by the army. The man in charge, Wade, is going over an interdimensional portal found there that leads to Dimension Z. And uh, according to him, quote, you know what the Z stands for. So, for whatever reason, saying zombies is not something he wants to do. Um, He just continually calls them stuff like cadavers animated by an engineered viral strain of unknown origin. To his knowledge, the portal is working, but it's sealed to prevent bleed-through. The plan in place is for the new world to be exploited, whether this is for mining, land, a new prison, etc. The risk doesn't outweigh the rewards in their case. Much to everyone's surprise, though, the portal isn't sealed, and not only is Wade pulled into the portal and devoured, but a mass of zombies come rushing through. Now, the way it's written, I'm not sure if Wade was giving a briefing about Kirtland, and during the army cleanup they discover the portal, or if this was a moment it all went sideways, it's not exactly clear. Um, Either way, uh, next up we decide to learn about the CVO, which is the Covert Vampiric Operations. And the team leader there is Cross. And he wakes up from a nightmare and he is notified by a field agent named Britt as a summons to the CVO coffin operations in the zombie outbreak. The CVO director over Mars briefs everyone about the situation. He wants the team to go in, rescue anyone still alive, and destroy everything to prevent it from getting worse. Benny, who is the Artilica which is like some sort of material that combines both science and supernatural energies, if I understood it correctly. But he is an Artilica smith, and he thinks the portal is Artilica-based, and he's going to teleport everybody in. But when they do that, Benny almost immediately passes out. And then during the escape, he has his arm ripped off by a zombie. Benny does come back and reveals that an entity called the Undermine was invading his thoughts, which is what made him pass out, and it is the being behind everything going on. Um, And it's kind of this hive mind that is connected to all of the zombies that are running amok. And apparently it can find its ways into the heads of non-zombies as well. As Britt mentions, Benny explains it in a way that's reminiscent of Marvel zombies, which, go back and listen to that episode. And he says this, It's survival. Survival of the species. They need fresh meat to feed the collective, to drive it ever forward. They're using the portal to spread to other dimensions, starting with ours. So, Betty then lets everyone know that not only can it infiltrate the mines, but also take knowledge that the individual holds. So now, knowing bits of what Benny knows, it wants to take Benny fully to find a way to expand across the multiverse. However, the Undermind gets in his head again, and before Brick can react, he bites her. Seeing as she's a vampire, though, she assumes nothing can happen, though, since she's technically undead already. From there, Benny teleports himself and a horde of zombies into the CVO Artilica storage compound, and the zombies run rampant while he takes what he needs for the Undermind. He teleports around some, stealing Brit and going back to the portal. The Undermine can sense Brit and tell she's something special. 
now that she's half zombie and half vampire. Benny uses her as living Artilica to power the portal and divert it into the other dimensions. And this is what she says. I am the gateway and the opener of paths. I am of two worlds, and therefore of all worlds. I take the eternal hunger where it needs to go. To new supplies of meat and knowledge. The further I take it, the more it eats. The more it eats, the smarter it gets. Cross and the rest of the ones who shuttled in arrives in time to try and stop Brit. Using some of the robots they discovered, one of them blows Brit's head off. However, she is able to reform it. She then zombifies one of the machines, indicating that the Undermine can control more than just living beings. Another robot they find them investigates the portal and realizes a way to shut it down. He throws some Artilica in, which disrupts everything. As it happens, and Brit is split into several forms, with each one going into one of the few universes that had opened up. And then with the portal shut down, Benny is now clear-minded. He was able to modify the portal so they can look out, but nothing can come through. Although I'm pretty sure this is kind of what got the army into the mess in the first place, but we'll ignore that. He notes that the Undermine sent zombies and zombified robots through the few universes that were opened up. If the Undermind can utilize the resources available in those dimensions, then it's possible that its plan continues and expands throughout the multiverse. Until then, they will look through portals for the pieces of Brit that the Undermind is using and try to save Brit, who's essentially unconscious um, in her main body. And so the last page features four portals surrounding the main one. Each of the four showcasing an image from the universe it is in, but the main portal shows the Undermine, which is like this giant face, um, but it's the face is created by dead bodies with skulls for teeth, uh, which is a pretty cool look, but I also want to apologize. My uh, allergies are getting the best of me, so I feel very nasally, so I'm sure I sound kind of weird in this recording, um, and reading a lot is on the uh, difficult side, surprisingly. So, And so that we get into the first crossover here, and so we will talk the Transformers infestation. This is also written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Art by Nick Roche, or uh, Roche, I'm not sure. Colors by Joanna LaFuente. Letters by Robbie Robbins. And edits by Andy Schmidt and Bobby Kurnow. And so with this, we see one ship coming down from space lands in Las Vegas. Emerging from the ship are both zombies and zombified machines, and what appears to be one Transformer. Out of the ship, who appear to have battle the zombies while on it, come Scourge, Cyclonus, Bayonet, and Galvatron. They are in a fight against what they call the Unlife Curse. Galvatron calls for Optimus Prime to team up and help stop these zombies. Of course, he does, but they want their former enemy, Galvatron, to stand down. Of course, this leads to a fight between the two forces, the Autobots not realizing what is going on, and the Decepticons who needs the help to put down the zombies. Even Witwicky, which I did not realize that they brought in Shia LaBeouf's character from the Transformers movies into the comics, because if I understand correctly, this is Sam Witwicky? Unless 
Witwicky was a character in Transformers that I was not aware of beforehand, but either way, I was kind of taken aback when I saw Witwicky uh, serving as like a uh, robot army technician sort of guy. It's basically like a soldier inside of robots that fight with Transformers, but either way, Witwicky jumps in to help along with some of his crew. Uh, however, one of his forces gets hijacked after a zombified robot is able to get the virus into it. And although the human inside wasn't actually bit, being inside the zombified robot was all that was needed to make him a zombie too. The fight with Galvatron comes to an end after a few inhibitors are thrown on him and the rest of the Decepticons surrender. It's here that the Autobots suddenly realize what is going on. Under Optimus' command, Wheeljack sets up an Energon dome around the city in an effort to prevent any escape. Galvatron explains what happened. As they were flying through space, they ran across a distortion in space-time. Galvatron could hear whispers from it, so he had some units go out and bring something back. Whatever it was had been frozen as a large lump, uh, but when it was thawed, they learned it has both humans and robots, but they were all zombies. And so it would seem that when those... That some of the humans and robots that went out in Infestation Number 1 issue, some of them ended up in the middle of space, where they got frozen and picked up by the Decepticons here. So the fight on board begins, and the zombies were able to sabotage the ship's guidance system, which led them to crash on Earth. From there, Galvatron knew he would need the Autobots' help to survive this outbreak. And then one of the Autobots, named, I think it's Cup, has war flashbacks. Uh, we see an old face who throws an arm through Cup's body, and this is Brit. This version of Brit, at least, uh, is there to bring about the end of the world, but not the... which this is something about the art for Brit. Uh, Brit is very well endowed up top, and they do not uh, shy away from it in the art in this series, um, even to the point where you can see, um, to keep it family-friendly, a little bump in the very front, which I always find weird in comic art when they have to get very specific <laughs> detailed with that specific body part. But yeah, she's not the same as she was before the portals had opened. This Brit looks to have overtaken the Transformer Bayonet, um, assuming Bayonet exists in the first place and not just one that she created when she got there, I don't really know. Uh, she goes on the offensive using her necromatic magic to attack the Transformers in an attempt to bring them into the Hive Mind. They see visions of the Undermind and its plan to feed across the multiverse. There also seems to be some sort of weird time distortion from when Brit traveled from the previous world to this universe. She mentions that her and the zombies have been adrift for centuries. Cup fights back and escapes her grasp. The fight begins again as the Transformers try to fight off the zombie horde who are climbing all over them. Galvatron unleashes some sort of energy bomb called the Heart of Darkness, and while a large blast, doesn't destroy Brit or even the entire zombie mass. Cup is now under the Undermine control. Brit extracts his knowledge to create a new portal, one that will take them to Cybertron. And as the zombie army begins walking towards the portal, one of the Autobots, Prowl, is able to use a protocol to access Cup's mind after an upgrade he had. After some pushing, they are able to get Cup to overcome his struggles and direct the portal to a new location. He is sending them all to the beginning of the dead universe, where they have nothing to eat. The portal explodes, sending everything within the explosion's radius to, the, to that universe, including Cup himself. 
And so, yeah, they do kind of mention in infestation number one that as it feeds, it grows basically with more knowledge. And so this is kind of where we see some of what they plan on doing is that they're going into all these other universes and they're taking control of all of these different machines and people and basically absorbing their knowledge into the hive mind, um, what they're capable of, their technology, basically just expanding what their capabilities are and just continually to improve upon their methods of traversing the multiverse. And I think that's an actually pretty interesting way to go about it. Uh, The Transformers series itself was pretty fun. Um, There's a lot of action in it. it. It fits in very well with the humans becoming zombies along with the machines. And so it does kind of blend those two ideas together, which is better than um, we'll say this next series does. The art itself also was very cartoony. It wasn't exactly like Saturday morning cartoon feel, but it had a kind of similar vibe at the very least, which is something I was not expecting. So very good. I enjoyed the Transformers crossover. However, the one I did not like was the G.I. Joe one. Yo, Joe! We'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe! So, G.I. Joe Joe Infestation, written by Mike Raicht, um, R-A-I-C-H-T, art by Giovanni Timpano, colors by Jay Brown, letters by Chris Mowry and Robbie Robbins, and edits by Andy Schmidt and Bobby Kurnow. So, I only found one little blurb here about Jojo Infestation, and that's when the writer, uh, Mike, uh, was approached by editor Andy Schmidt. Their first thing to tackle was making robots and zombies work in the G.I. Joe universe. Uh, They already had the use of robotics being toyed around with um, in the main books, so the difficult part would be fitting the zombies in. According to Andy Schmidt, G.I. Joe was the hardest to fit the crossover into, and I think that it shows. Uh, That universe didn't deal with aliens and extra dimensions, but most importantly, they wanted the event to feel like it would belong in the G.I. Joe universe and not something just shoehorned in. And that's kind of where I think they somewhat failed uh, because this was my least favorite of the crossovers. Um, It just felt the least connected to everything. And maybe you'll understand why when I kind of describe it here. So the G.I. Joe crossover begins um, with the Baroness and some Cobra troops They're on a submarine, and they quickly board a sailboat that has some Joe units on it. One of the Joes, Kenneth D. Rich, is kidnapped and held for interrogation in an underwater base. And they're basically trying to figure out what the Joes were doing. And he doesn't go along with it, but that might change when he realizes that they were able to discover this very messed up looking robot arm that was in the Joes' possession. So the issue skips around a little bit as we get a glimpse on what is going on at this Cobra base. There is testing being done to limit the hesitation of robots on the battlefield. One of those in charge, Dr. Zeich, or Zyke, uh, Z-Y-C-H, seems to have ulterior motives, though. She is currently in a wheelchair and looking for workable tech that can be utilized and trusted to make her walk again. As she leaves, the Baroness finds her and gives her the robot arm. The Baroness basically tells her to find out everything about the arm before the interrogation for its fruit. Otherwise, she may not be needed anymore. Dr. Zeich heads to her room, and we learn 
She has already modified herself with tech. The problem is, she can't get it to work. However, the robot arm starts reaching out to not only her computer, but her as well. And it wants to take control. So from there, the interrogation starts to have some questions answered. The Joes have this arm because they found it, but they were under the assumption it was Cobra's. Kenneth informs them that the arm is basically sentient and looking to expand. If it connects to any hardware at the base, it will become the base, essentially. He knows this because that's what happened to their facility. Within minutes of being hooked up, their whole base was overtaken. And as this discussion is happening, we see a similar thing starting to happen here. The robot is accessing the robots that were being tested on and lets them out. They begin firing on anyone and everyone they come into contact with, and as the Baroness walks out of the interrogation room laughing at the very idea of a sentient robot, she is instructed that they are under attack. Not only by the robots, though, but also by the animals that have been grafted with technology at the request of Dr. Zeich. The Undermine releases them from their cages, and now the Cobras have a new threat to worry about. As the human termination continues, Dr. Zeich tries to reason with the Undermined. She tells them that she can access the most difficult systems for them, and she won't fight it at all. All she wants to do is walk. A few of the scientists try to escape by following a bird that was not grafted with tech. However, not all of them do survive. The Baroness and a few Cobras retreat back near the interrogation room. Kenneth tries to help by giving them some ideas and the biggest concern, the virus getting off this rig and hacking other systems, especially nuclear ones. They let Kenneth free as the robots start closing in, and they make for their escape. They meet up with the scientist who did escape with the bird, and he lets them in on some information that might help. The robots assess each individual based on threat, so the plan is the ones who aren't armed will draw their attention first, and then when the others with guns come out, the hesitation that was previously stated would be just long enough for the weaponless people to get by, while the ones with guns can get some shots off and divert the attention fully. The scientist and Kenneth run to Dr. Zeich's room, where we see she has pretty much fully integrated with the Undermind. She is standing, but she looks almost entirely robot at this point, including wearing the arm that was brought in. Kenneth cuts off the arm with an axe, but learns that it won't be enough to stop the virus. As Dr. Zeich demands the robots to take him out, he rushes her, which causes them to not fire in fear of taking out the control bot. However, when Kenneth pulls out the cord connecting her to the virus, they fire away and take them both out. The issue ends with the Baroness escaping while the virus seems to be stuck in the arm again due to the Cobra firewalls being too tough to overcome. So, I do mention the Undermind in this, but they never actually mention the Undermind in this issue. Uh, if you did not read any of the, uh, the Transformers or Infestation Number 1, you'd have no idea what's going on here. Uh, there's no sort of hint of where that robot arm came from. There's no indication as to why everything is being done. And Dr. Zeich, we learn, is supposed to be this universe's version of Brit. Or at least Brit had was part of the robot arm, I guess. And so when the arm took over Dr. Zeich, that's, I guess, Brit taking control. But they never mentioned Brit, so again, it's just, for something that they did not want to feel shoehorned in, it feels real shoehorned in, in ways that just didn't really explain itself very well. Yeah, it just, I was not crazy about it. So, moving on. 
space, a final frontier. One that I was actually pleasantly surprised by was Star Trek Infestation. Uh, this was written by Scott Tipton and David Tipton. Pencil finishes and inks by Gary Erskine. Pencil layouts by Casey Maloney. Colors by Louis Antonio Delgado. Letters by Chris Mowry. And edits by Tom Maltz and Bobby Kernow. So when Chris Royale approached the Tipton brothers to do Star Trek, it was an obvious choice to go with the classic crew of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. However, they wanted one change. They wanted to do the Star Trek The Motion Picture era of the classic crew. They felt that the 1970s tone of that movie fit with the story they wanted to tell, while also leaving the possibility of future stories being told in that time as well. Because the Star Trek series was so good at bouncing between different tones, going with the horror element felt like it could work too. But more than anything, they wanted it to still have that Star Trek vibe. And I'm not familiar all that well with the 70s Star Trek at all, um, but it's good regardless. I can I can picture these being characters from that show, so I think the Tipton Brothers did quite well. Also, I would want to say that uh, Gary Erskine, the penciler, did a fantastic job as well. I think it captured the look and feel of that show as well, based on what I've seen of it. Um, I'm hardly <laughs> well-knowledged enough, but um, it does give me those vibes at the very least. So yeah, all around, I think they were a great team to work on this. And yeah, I thought I pulled out a pretty enjoyable crossover here. So it starts in Stardate 7493.5. Dr. McCoy has cured the Arpalian viral pox and is being rewarded on Calibus 7. On his trek are Spock and Captain Kirk. As they get close, they can't get anyone to answer the comms. As they arrive, they can see why. Everyone's gone. A few of the grunts traveling with them look around and discover a dead body. As Dr. McCoy looks him over, it comes alive. They set their phasers to stun, but upon firing on the dead body, approaching them, it does nothing. They realize that they are starting to be surrounded. A good amount of this issue is them trying to get away from these zombies, including Captain Kirk smashing one with a plank of wood. One of the grunts also asks if they should set their phasers to full power, but with them being colonists and no idea what is going on, Captain Kirk turns down the chance. He hopes Dr. McCoy can cure them. Padilla, one of the grunts, has the virus overtake him, which is kind of easy to miss. Uh, the first zombie actually scratched him or something. It was very hard to tell. Padilla actually attacks one of the other grunts and bites his neck, which is not hard to see. Um, he gets smashed with wood by the captain, too. So the crew escape with the grunt who was bitten, and when they have some breathing room, Dr. McCoy takes a look at it and notices the virus and its speed and aggression. As he begins to turn, the crew rushes off again. Unfortunately, a hidden zombie surprises yet another grunt and gets bitten in the neck, too. The crew begins heading back to the ship, which is called the Conrad, but see that Padilla and Barnes, two of the grunts, are heading back to the ship too, making them worry that they can fly the ship out. They've noticed that some of uh, the instinct in these people are still at play, so they can't take the chance that these Starfleet officers may have some instinct of flying a ship as well. The crew try to lock them out, but don't succeed. In the chance they do take off, Captain Kirk relays a message to Scotty, who won't receive it for a day or two. 
Uh, he tells Scotty that if the Conrad were to approach, to destroy it. Don't let it on the Enterprise. He says that they will hold out before the Enterprise arrives there. So they turn their phasers to full blast and shoot at the Conrad, blowing it up. Not really sure if they thought it wouldn't destroy it, so I don't know what the whole message about the Conrad showing up was all about. But either way, they blow up the Conrad, and so all the attention from the zombies are on them again. And so they run. On their way to a facility where a power spike is happening, they notice that the virus isn't limited to humans as a deer is also zombified. Which felt kind of random because they don't really do anything with that, but whatever. They find the facility, and in the mad rush to have the doors open before the horde gets to them, Captain Kirk sets his phasers to full and gets ready to blast them. Right before the zombies get to them, though, Spock is able to get them inside. The doors won't keep them away, though, so whatever they're going to do, they need to do it fast. They run across an AI that educates the crew on its creator, someone who is trained to find a perfect synthesis of human and robots. But a woman named Britt showed up, saying she had been sent to help the research. The work would be completed, but her influence changed the end result. The robots didn't come out more human, but instead with the infection from the Undermind. The AI takes them to its creator's quarters, as it was the best defensive point in the building. When they get there, Dr. McCoy looks into the data that was used to create the infection on their end. He believes he can find a cure for these people, so he gets to work. Dr. McCoy thinks he finds it, and they test it on the creator, who was previously zombified. As they wait to see the result, and make more of the cure, more zombies come in. Dr. McCoy starts sniping them from a distance with the cure, while Spock and Captain fight them off with weapons, which was not a plank of wood. As they do, though, Britt breaks through the ceiling as she saw a few of the humans still inside through the eyes of the zombies. After getting knocked aside and realizing no human can punch like that, he takes a wrench to the back of Britt's head and snaps her neck, which she pops right back into place. She realizes a cure is being made and goes to stop it, but the AI and a few more bodies of it step in to try and slow her down. She is then pelted with a number of syringes of the cure, which only infuriates her. As she rushes in to attack the captain, he lays back and uses his legs to propel her over him and over a railing into a vat of the cure, which is very reminiscent of the Joker falling into the vat of acid. Whatever that was supposed to be, the chemicals in Ace, in Ace Chemicals. So yeah, the other vats end up shooting off into the atmosphere where it results in a rainstorm. This rainstorm contains the cure. We then see everyone that had been zombies, still sort of zombies. The doctor tells them that while it cures their sanity and more severe symptoms, the physical changes to their body remain and the virus still lies dormant in their bodies. But he promises as he leaves that he will continue searching for the cure, but until then, everyone there should remain on the planet to avoid it from spreading, which also included the grunts that were part of their team. Yeah. That's it. Apparently they find a semi-cure for these people, so they're not completely zombies. But it's also kind of a stark contrast to all the other issues where there was kind of no hope for any of them. And people were kind of written in a way to where it's like, got kill or be killed type of thing.
up is Ghostbusters Infestation, which may be my favorite just because it's Ghostbusters. Uh, this is written by Eric Burnham, art by Kyle Hotz, colors by Dan Brown, letters by Chris Mowry, edits by Tom Waltz, and Bobby Kernow. So, Eric Burnham had previously worked with editor Tom Waltz, who is now part of IDW. Ever since Burnham knew that IDW had the Ghostbusters license, he had routinely reached out to Waltz to do a story. With Infestation in the works, Tom gave in and reached out to Eric around January of 2010 to gauge some interest and if he would submit a pitch for the Ghostbusters side of it. After some back-and-forth discussions about the two-issue story, the pitch was submitted in March 2010 and written that summer. Outside of what IDW and Sony specifically wanted accomplished in this book, it was up to Burnham to make it all work in the context of the story. Being that Ghostbusters wasn't an ongoing at the time, Burnham had some freedom to do what he wanted, as long as it didn't contradict anything that came before it. It also allowed him to rock the boat of that universe a bit, and that would spin out to a monthly Ghostbusters book afterward. And so with the Ghostbusters crossover, it basically starts on Brit. Uh, she starts the infection going. Just a very quick scene of her in the woods infecting <laughs> someone. Um, and then it cuts over to Ray and Venkman, who capture, I can't tell if it's a dog or a cat. I don't know. It's some sort of animal poltergeist, and a zombie starts walking towards them. Ray makes a call to Egon to come take a look at this guy who Venkman is continuously annoyed at, uh, because the guy just stares at him the entire time. Egon's diagnosis is that the man has no soul. Even seeing this, the gang still seem concerned about whatever seems to be going on in the main series or something? I don't know. Uh, they mentioned something about containment issues with poltergeists, uh, something with Coney Island, so I don't know if maybe there was a mini-series before this that stuff went down? But, yeah. Apparently something's going on that this issue kind of tries to capitalize on a little bit. So, as they're talking, Egon notices some sort of energy or mist enter the zombie, which causes it to flip out and attack them. Egon tells them to just go ahead and blast it because it's not human, which is, again, funny after reading Dr. McCoy cure it. As Winston blasts him, we see what the zombies see. A human outline with certain internal organs are highlighted, uh, but something odd happens when Winston zaps him. The zombie absorbs the proton energy, so much so that he explodes. And this explosion ends up blasting like gunk, out that a nearby cat which th this part is really kind of confusing because it I'm assuming that the gunk has to get into something's mouth uh, because it hits everybody but only the cat is affected by this but uh, the cat then turns into a zombie as well with parts of its body starting to look like it was eaten away by the virus gunk they all team up on shooting their proton streams at this cat which fully vaporize it to prevent gunk from exploding again. Before they head back to the firehouse, they change out of their clothes as it is covered in the goo. At the firehouse, Janine is taking a lot of calls about zombies. About that time, a zombie comes into the firehouse too. Janine lugs a trap at it, and it happens to be the one the previous poltergeist was trapped in. It pops out and enters the body of the zombie and turns the whole thing into like this weird black goo statue. Egon comes in and theorizes that the poltergeist is always looking for a body. Since the zombie is soulless, the poltergeist entered it and changed the whole subatomical formula. 
However, this fixes one of the problems they had. Egon holds out a trap, and is able to pull the poltergeist out of its body, and it causes the zombie to explode as well. But now the poltergeist is able to be contained properly, which I guess is, again, something from a previous series or something that uh, they were having trouble with. And so, at this time, Ray is driving around town, and he sees something large and in charge. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. He apparently escaped from the grid, but now he is the prime goal for the zombies, who begin to converge on him for reasons Egon doesn't understand. And that's when Britt makes her appearance to the Ghostbusters. Uh, she lets them know that she is from another universe, but that the zombies aren't the main problem. The zombies are there to actually weaken another entity from the Ghostbusters' past. Gozer. Once the Ghostbusters leave, the real reason she is there is explained. They'll weaken Gozer, but then she can steal not only their tech, but also part of Gozer's essence for the Undermind. From there, they head out to see Stay Puft, who is currently being attacked by zombies. Ray begins utilizing a new weapon he created, which is a gun that shoots out ghosts. Uh, he is able to take out one of the zombies this way, and when Venkman informs him that there are no more zombies, uh, because... Now, they're climbing all over Stay Puft. They're all chowing down on this Marshmallow Man. And so the gang is now dealing with a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man zombie. Thankfully, they do have enough poltergeists to solve this problem. Since they couldn't contain them properly, uh, they kept the traps in the back of their car. So they lay them all out and let the ghosts out. They all fly and enter Stay Puft. From there, we see something incredible. Clawing out of the zombified molten Stay Puft is the original Stay Puft. So now New York has two giant sailors in town who begin to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And so we have a zombified Stay Puft versus the original Stay Puft. And the zombified Stay Puft seems to be a little bit more aggressive and even takes a bite out of normal Stay Puft. But that is until the Ghostbuster sends some more ghosts into the zombie Stay Puft. And so here there's some, like, science tech jargon um, after the zombie Stay Puft explodes, but it results in normal Stay Puft dispersing. Uh, Egon tells Venkman he will eventually reform, but until then his energies will cause supernatural activity to skyrocket within the city. And then from the shadows we see Britt stealing one of the traps and saying she'll leave them a surprise to remember her by as she points to her teeth. Uh, and then the last page shows a scanner searching for something, and it indicates that in Newark, New Jersey, some necrotic slime has been detected. So yeah, the Ghostbusters one might be my favorite. Um, it was really well done. Like It almost felt like the real Ghostbusters cartoon um, that was done. All the characters felt very written on point. I thought the art was incredible. Um, from both some of the images that are shown in there. There's one image of Egon where like his glasses are like pitch black and just has like this very creepy vibe to him that you don't really see, but for some reason like I really took to that image in particular. Um, of course Zombie Stay Puffed was really cool. Just seeing Stay Puffed in general is always great. Yeah, like the facial features and everything that Kyle Hotz would do with it. I just thought it was just a whole bunch of fun. Uh, the idea of the Undermine taking a little bit of Gozer was kind of interesting, even though that really doesn't play out at all in Infestation number 2. Um, but yeah, just a lot of fun. Um, if I were to rank the three, 
or the four, I guess. Oh, which I would say I liked Ghostbusters the most, followed by Star Trek, followed by Transformers, followed way, way followed by the G.I. Joe one. But yeah, I would say at least three out of the four, if you were to pick them up, would be a decent read. to Infestation number two. Uh, this is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Pencils by David Messina. Inks by Gaetano Carlucci. Colors by Claudia Scarlet Gothica. Art assist by Claudia Balboni. Letters by Robbie Robbins. Edits by Chris Royal, Tom Waltz, and Barbie Kernow. And so the first few pages bring the reader up to date with everything for, with the briefest of acknowledgement in the tie-ins. We see the curling complex still having a zombie problem um, and then they are promptly bombed. Uh, the CVO crew teleport back to the Coffin HQ before the bomb hits, though. Um, so they are safe and ready to help headquarters against the zombies that Benny brought there previously. Um, not only are they there, though, we learn that the entire U.S. is starting to be taken over by the zombies. Which I wonder if maybe they did that in the main series, possibly? I think it would be interesting to see kind of like how that all played out. So, Benny, using a helmet that's able to keep the Undermine out, is trying to use the unconscious Brit in their world to open interdimensional gateways. She comes to, though, and opens up the four doorways so her other versions of herself can come back and enter her body. She now holds knowledge of advanced technology and science, along with what seems to be newfound power. She opens up a portal to the Undermine, as we see the CVO fighting on the lawn of the White House trying to protect the President. Benny teleports in and tells Cross that they need him to help with Brit. Cross's bright idea is to become like her. He pulls off Benny's helmet so he hears the call of the Undermine again and allows himself to be bitten. With help from the CVO demon consultant Nicodemus, though, he is able to prevent being overtaken. Cross teleports in to where Brit is as the Undermine is on the brink of entering their world. Cross is able to stab Brit from behind, but it's too late. The Undermine has breached the barrier. As its body of dead bodies leans in towards Cross, he decides to use the magic that fuels him to rewrite the laws of magic, which, for whatever logic it makes, will erase the Undermine from existence, even at the expense of his life, potentially. So, he does it. The epilogue sees a cleaning crew taking care of the dead bodies while coming to the realization that the Undermine may not be gone completely. But if it isn't... It hasn't shown itself yet. Also, Artilica is now inert, and magic has to be redefined as it has been reset. Brit is in a fugue state, and the CVO has no clue for how long, and as far as they can tell, Cross disintegrated with the Undermind. But, as we see his grave with a person looking over it, we realize that Cross may not actually be dead. And that is how infestation number two ends. And so there's this one too, which... I think it's more of a gag comic. It was included in the omnibus, but doesn't really seem to have a place with the overall story. Um, it's definitely a more cartoony approach, but it does have Brit in it, which doesn't make sense considering what happens in Infestation 1 and 2. Um, but it was in it, so I'm going to bring it up. It's called Infestation Pocket God. It was written by Jason M. Burns, 
Pencils and Inks by Antonio Campo, Colors by Paul Little, and Letters by Nick Deschenes. And so I don't know what these things are supposed to be. They look like primitive cavemen sort of creatures. Um, but if you know what the Ubisoft Rabbids are, like the weird bunny things that kind of remind you of minions, they give me those vibes as well. Except they're less crazy and goofy. Well, less crazy at the very least. Anyways, one of them is playing a game where they're being quartered. And he has one of its legs pulled off, but it's played off as like a joke to uh, another creature. Uh, he throws his leg aside and pops a new one into existence. A zombie monkey watches from a distance. Uh, this monkey kidnaps one of them named Newbie, who is the one who had his leg pulled off, and takes him to Brit. Not sure where this Brit came from again, because it's not continuity. Again, I'm sure this is just like some goofy gag comic. So, Brit believes that these beings can cheat death and regenerate something beneficial to the Undermind. So, Newbie takes her to the dump. Quite literally, a literal dump of what appears to be their previous dead bodies. Um, and a dead body of a T-Rex as well. And so, there's lots of play regarding Brit's large chest being called Fleshy Bumps Brit. And Newbie even snuggles in them. So, even the creative team here kind of realizes like how comical the... Uh, chest element of Brit is. Um, so they can't play with that here. So as this is happening, the monkey spies on Newbie's friends and finds out that Newbie responds because of the gem of life. Brit uses the dump of dead bodies to resurrect them all as zombies and attack the caveman rabbits to get the gem of life. As they discover they can kill the zombies by destroying the head, Brit brings out the zombie T-Rex. But Newbie is able to talk to it and treat it like a pet again, even though it's a zombie. He then has the T-Rex eat Brit. And so the next day, Newbie knows the T-Rex needs to leave the island, but is sad to do it. Using tough love, he forces the zombie to walk out into the ocean and not come back. But the dead zombie monkey still remains watching as it happens. And that's the end of the issue. Just this very kind of random, cartoony gag comic. Like... Okay, like it's it's whatever. But yeah, that is their infestation event. I only have a few things of random trivia here. So while ITW wasn't necessarily trying to create their own universe, they did want to try and bring their creator-owned stuff into one place. The idea of infestation is what helped move that idea along. And Chris Rael originally thought that infestation was stupid. He thought having a big event with all these famous properties but not having them interact with each other was a lost opportunity. But the book sold out. He felt good about the stories being told and they felt that they learned a lot from the event. Plus it's something they can pull out in the future to show other licensors to try and get them on board with the events. Uh, this kind of carries over with another random trivia um, in that one of the drawbacks of Infestation 1 was the lack of crossover between properties. Obviously, the license holders were hesitant as to how they could be used, so they wanted these characters to remain separate. So once they could show them how an event would play out, it was easier to convince licensors to lift that restriction for Infestation 2. Which, I'm not sure that actually happened. Uh, like I said, the omnibus comes with Infestation number 2 in it, and I've only read the first few bits of it, but so far there's no interactions. 
and just kind of scanning ahead from what I could tell. There doesn't seem to be any later on. For those not aware, Infestation number two is... It's basically kind of plays out the same way. There's like a, a bookend issue for number one, number two of Infestation, and then there's like the crossovers in between. And if I remember right, those were Transformers, which is one I read. Uh, Ninja Turtles... Dungeons and Dragons, and something else I'm blanking on. But, either way, it's, instead of zombies, it's like Cthulian monsters that are going about, that like come from space or something. But yeah, from what I can tell, they didn't really do anything different with Infestation Number 2 in terms of the crossovers, which I feel like, just like Chris Rowell said, is such a lost opportunity. Even if it was done differently, like, I, like as much as I would love to see, like, the Ghostbusters and Transformers working together, even if, like, Infestation number 2 had, like, parts where it was, like, flashing into the other universes so you could see, like, what was going on at those times, like, at the same time uh, that Cross and the other members of CVO was trying to stop the Undermind and everything, but... Everything felt so separate, and it was kind of a bummer reading it. Just because I, in the back of my head, that's why I thought this event was going to be. I thought there was going to be more interaction between all these characters, and there just wasn't. I don't think Infestation Number 2 is going to be any different. So I, part of me doesn't even really want to read it for that very reason. But yeah, it was kind of disappointing in that regard. Regardless of how I felt, uh, Infestation was a big success for IDW. Um, every book sold out, and pretty much as soon as Infestation was over, they started planning the sequel, uh, which came out, I believe, the following year. So they were they fast-tracked that. And, yeah, it worked for their benefit, I guess, but it could have been so much more. It just... It wasn't. So with that, let's get to the outro. Something strange in the neighborhood. We don't call. There's something weird and it don't look good. We don't call. I hope Alan is able to join me for future episodes. I don't know if we'll be able to get this to work. Alan lives on the East Coast. I live in the Midwest. Really, the only time I can record is at night and typically on weekends. And Alan has to... (laughs) Alan does so much throughout the day, every day, that it's just having to stay up late to record with me is taking a toll on Alan. So, hopefully we can get some stuff recorded. Um, but otherwise, this might be what you get. You might just get a one-man show for the near future. But I guess we'll see how that plays out. Anyways, yeah, if you like what you hear, maybe you don't like it. Either way, hopefully you like it enough to keep spreading the word of the podcast. Rate and review, even if it's a bad review, anything that can help us get better is appreciated. Um, but share the podcast, share it with friends, forums, Twitter, uh, Reddit, anything, anything to help this podcast grow. It's something that Alan and I would greatly appreciate. 
Um, don't forget to follow Hypertime to Podcast on Twitter at HypertimePod. And if you have any questions or topic suggestions, uh, feel free to reach out to me there. Uh, we also have other content on VG.TV that you can check out, mainly if you're into video games, but occasionally we do talk about movies, we talk about music, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, our VGU Twitter is at VGU underscore TV. If you need some video game podcasts to check out, we also have Players Club Podcast, which is Emmett and Alan, and then Win, which is our weekend news, which is Graydon and Alan. And then you can also follow us over on YouTube, which if you want to subscribe to us there, um, like all of our videos, whatever, we have plenty of content up there, and Alan does so much on that end as well. Again, they spread themselves thin <laughs> a lot, so check out everything that is done over there. Um, if you just search TV, it will be the channel that puts out current stuff. Um, I think there's a few VGU TVs out there, so just look for the one that's putting out video game stuff relatively recently. So uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at jmilly99. That's J M I L L E nine nine. Um, Alan, you can follow at the Alan Muir. That's T H E A L L A N M U I R. And yeah, with that, thank you for listening. I hope to be back in a couple weeks. Uh, maybe with Alan. Alan did mention he wanted to do our next topic, so hopefully uh, we can get that done. So yeah, with that, I will bid you all adieu. I will see you further down the hypertime, and I hope you all take care. Bye! This has been a VGU.TV production. For all of the hottest hot takes and other opinions on video games, music, and a lot more, tune in to VGU.TV.